Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. This is Disasters and Triumphs, a new podcast brought to you by Olive Magazine. I'm Janine, Deputy Editor and Host of the podcast, and in this series I'm inviting some of our favourite people from the food world to share pivotal moments in their careers. I'll be asking about first steps, inspiring people they met on the way, and what it felt like when success arrived. We'll also explore the flip side of that and talk about tougher times that knocked them off course, how they got back on track, and what they learnt as a result because sometimes failure can be just as inspiring as success. This episode, we welcome Callum Franklin, chef, author, and self-confessed pastry deviant to the podcast. After a career working in some of London's top restaurants, including the Ivy, One Aldwych, and Roast, Callum was appointed executive chef at Holborn Dining Rooms in the Rosewood Hotel. Whilst working there, he discovered an antique pie tin in the vaults of the hotel, which kicked off a fascination with intricate pastry creations. A specialist pie menu in the restaurant was followed by the opening of a dedicated pie room in 2018, where the public could watch the pastry chefs at work. In 2020, Callum published his first book, The Pie Room, which is an absolute treasure trove of recipes and technique. Jamie Oliver crowned him the pie king, and we think it's a worthy title. (laughs) So welcome, Callum. Thank you. Thank you for, <laughs> for having me on. That's lovely. What, yeah. Always kind of, always feels a bit strange when I hear intros about myself. It's very, yeah, lovely, but it's always yeah. very weird. Yeah. <laughs> We've got to put you in some kind of context. I mean, yeah. you are actually a bit of a veteran of the Olive Magazine podcast because being on twice, first in 2017, mm. episode 41, when we sort of started talking about, um, 
you just introduce the pie menu to the restaurant, I think. And then uh, in 2018, episode 94, we talked all about the pie room and the building of that and the creation of that. And I listened to that again this morning and it's a brilliant episode and you mm. give away quite a lot of tricks as well. So um, anyone who's interested in learning a bit of technique can listen to episode 94. I want to go back a bit though, to, to begin with, um, mm. to the beginning um, and talk about, you know, your kind of first steps and what the the pivotal moment was when you kind of knew that if not, becoming a chef, whatever that you knew that your career was going to be something to do with food. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, sure. So like as far back as I can sort of remember at school, I, <laughs> I knew that I wasn't somebody who was like particularly uh, suited to academic work in, in, in the sort of guise of doing exams, studying, uh, I didn't really find anything that could stop me from having a sort of fidgety energy that really just didn't want to be sat down and studying and whatever. And both my brothers very much were like that. They were very academic and great at, you know, uh, at studying exams. And I, I really couldn't uh, wait to finish school. And But I had no idea what I wanted to do. You know, I mean, you sit there in, in those sort of, guidance lessons and they say oh you know you should go and study this at university and just completely in my mind was everything they suggested was completely irrelevant to me in terms of what I wanted to do and then I took a job in the summer and um, one of the last years at school um just as a kitchen porter washing up and I just remember like absolutely crystal clear sort of thinking like I, not not necessarily being like up to your elbows in soap in the sink, but the environment of the kitchen, I was like, I this is 100% where I could see myself working and enjoying this atmosphere, right? It's kind of like, uh, yeah, so that sort of adrenaline-driven, pretty wild kitchen atmosphere, which weirdly is all about sort of finesse and creativity kind of hidden underneath all of that wildness and and shouting and noise and clanging there's these you know plates being dressed beautifully and uh and I was like this is, yeah it's amazing um and I remember going home that night and and sort of giving the fingers up to both my brothers and saying I've <laughs> I found what I want to do you know I was young still and uh and I also thought, you know, this is something that if I if I really apply myself to, I could do okay at, you know, mm -hmm. if I really work hard. I think that's interesting what you say about the, the energy and the kind of chaos in the kitchen, mm. you know, hiding all of the intricacies. Because I think someone watching from the outside, looking at a professional kitchen and seeing those little ticker tape, things coming through and people shouting, ready and for da, 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 you know and it just it baffles me I, I think my brain would just go to to mush being in mm. the middle of all of that I mean how it do you keep a rain on all of that it definitely for everybody it does at the beginning it is if you know when you go into a kitchen that's really uh like a professional outfit and everything is you know sort of called out as an order and everybody answers in time and 
and you have to sort of mentally juggle all these different things at once in a very short sort of intense period it throws everyone at the beginning i i I remember sort of what you know being in that environment and 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 just thinking how you know how do they do this this not you know really not being able to keep up and and seeing people just sort of taking it in their stride and and it just comes with time that's all it is yeah what what was your like um progression like then from from that moment where you were a pot washer to mm. deciding I want to get into the chef side of it how did how did it go in terms of years for yeah just sort of nagging at the chef to sort of being allowed yeah. you know to step into the main kitchen and and you, if you're lucky you work in a kitchen where as a kitchen porter you already do some food prep you know I was talking to someone the other day uh chef in London and she was saying that you know the kitchen porters at hers actually did most of the preparation for Sunday lunch, all of the peeling potatoes, prepping the veg and whatever. And that, so, you know, it, I, I was lucky like that as well. And you kind of had that, it's not too far of a step to go into a sort of commie chef position. Um, and then really I went down a very, you know, very traditional route of, of working through that tiered kitchen system of like commie chef, demi chef, chef de party, you know, et cetera, et cetera, up until kind of where I am now. Yeah, it is It is very structured. It's very hierarchical, isn't it, in the, in the mm. traditional t- terms, I guess, yeah. unless you go off and win master chef and get to open your own place, mm. you get to frog leap. But, um, but yeah, what, thinking about that, who was, who was, who inspired you on the way? What, what, what sort of people did you meet? Who was like the most inspiring person within that? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I am very lucky that I've worked with lots of people like that. But one who kind of really stood out was uh, when I, I moved to a hotel called the One Aldwych Hotel, um, not far from where we are now, actually, at, at the Rosewood. And the chef there was Tony Fleming. And I'd worked with him kind of at a previous hotel. So I'd been at uh, the Great Eastern Hotel in Liverpool Street, and he was running banqueting there I think at the time and I was in fine dining <clears throat> but then he you know he, I, I heard he'd gone to one Aldwych I'd, I'd only heard good things from his team about working with him so I was like oh yeah I'd love to go there and um the way Tony led a team certainly changed the way that I worked afterwards you know how I led a team um he was very fair he was he was firm when he needed to be and he was serious when he needed to be. But he has like a really wonderful nature about him as a human anyway. He's very honest, very fun. Um, but he'd also look at everybody in the kitchen as equals. So if somebody was really struggling, where I'd worked with some chefs who would have sort of thrown that person aside, you know, uh, or just, you know, allowed them to sort of fail so they'd leave. Tony would identify what their weakness was and work on it and improve that person. So it, brought, it actually brought the strength of the whole team up all the time. And, uh, yeah, and I, I kind of always appreciated that. And then actually towards the end of the time I was working with him, I was really struggling with something in life and the way Tony dealt with me over that again, was a a massive eye-opener for me because, um, 
yeah, I was making a lot of mistakes at the time in and out of professional life and personal life. And Tony didn't just say, you know, get rid of this guy. He's a nightmare. He did everything he could to help me. And uh, yeah, it's difficult to explain quite how much that meant to me at the time and still does now. Uh, but it, in some ways, this is going to sound strong, but he did save my life in some ways at the time. Wow. That's powerful. Mm. And I think that kind of, you know, because you're talking about compassion and empathy with mm. other human beings. And it's obviously something that you said you, you've brought into your own kitchen. Yeah. And when, when we opened Holborn Dining Room, I kind of thought like, you know, I ask a lot of the people that come to work with me. They, they're there, you know, quite long hours and they have to work hard when they're there. And I, I want them to enjoy themselves when they're there, right? I don't want people to spend, you know, a large part of their waking week in fear or, you know, scared of making a mistake or, you know, not really enjoying being where they are. I'd much mm. rather people kind of had a smile when they were, well... <laughs> <laughs> don't have anyone has a smile on the way to work but 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 are not fearful about going to work yeah yeah is it is it important for you to be a mentor as well like I'm thinking about for example um Knox on your team mm. who you've 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 you champion her a lot um and and I, I remember like the, the various conversations we had and re-listened to that one this morning you were talking about um, you know, I think she's she's head of pies now. Is that a, mm. I want that title, please? Yeah. <laughs> head of so is is it important for you to to be that kind of mentor figure, bringing people yeah. up? And I mean, look, seeing seeing the success of the chefs that I'm working with is huge. That's hugely important to me, and and uh, I, I know some people are a little bit fragile about things like that. Like it's, you know, why detract from you, right? You're, you know, you're, the, you know, you're the name. Why, just, why give them any sort of spotlight? But our kitchen is built on the strength of all of those people. So actually seeing the, you know, Knox and Mark and all of those guys being successful and getting their names out there in the public eye is huge for me. And, uh, and the other thing for, for it, I think that really pushed me on that sort of path was um, I didn't always have a lot of self-confidence when I was kind of coming through the industry. And a lot of that was sort of being battered by a lot of chefs throughout my career. But, you know, always being told that you're doing the wrong thing and you're not good enough. And um, what I kind of realized after a while was like with the pie making, you know, I didn't have any sort of, formal training in pastry but I just realized that if I fully fully threw myself into it and worked really hard I could get probably quite good at it and that opened you know a few doors for me and then I, I kind of realized that like, hold on this applies to most things right and uh and it but you know Knox would say to me you know I chef I can't do that you know that's too complicated for me I wouldn't be able to do that and we'd have these talks where I'd explain, yeah, so why, why wouldn't you be able to do that? Explain to me why you wouldn't do that. And then we'd talk about a path and how we, you know, how we kind of take the steps to get down that path to reach the goal. And before you knew it, she'd done it. 
and it's kind of removed that mental barrier for her a bit. Yeah, it's so true though because I've watched, you know, from the from the first time we we did the podcast in 2017 when you'd you'd literally you were telling the story of finding the antique tin in the basement and mm. you know opening it all up with the keys and working out what it was and starting on on that journey of um, doing all of those amazing pastries to to now you're releasing your book and the pie room and and I've just seen it kind of just the focus and the the gradual un- unveiling of different different levels and all through that you've just been like beam of light just going towards what you wanted and um it's so inspirational to watch that thank you thank you yeah I just I don't know you just find that thing right that I just for me it was this sort of deep deep well of information and history that I could keep going down and and still you know we'd sort of barely scratching the surface of of what you know we can do in terms of pie making and uh and that's really exciting for me and um yeah being able to take a few people there on the journey to sort of do that is amazing looking back at the last few years what's been you know your triumph what's been the point where you thought yeah i've made it i've arrived what was the biggest success point um I don't think there was ever a, like a single a singular moment. Yeah. I think it has been more gradual, but there have been times where, you know, people that, you know, I've very much seen as sort of idols in the food world and stuff like that. I, I took, there was one. Okay. Actually there was one. <laughs> Not wasn't that long ago. So uh, it was Angela Hartnett and we were at a, um, charity dinner that um one of her chefs was one of the collaboration chefs it was me Knox uh one of Angela's chefs and a couple of other chefs um and we were doing this dinner and Angela was a guest and I you know I've held Angela in the highest esteem all my career right she's this legend and uh at the end of the dinner we kind of like walked past and I I just like kind of waved at Angela and she looked at me she went all right Callum and I was like I'm not going to swear, but I was like, <laughs> oh, my God. Like, that is the coolest thing, the coolest thing. And Knox was like, she knows our names. She knows our names. Yeah, that was a big thing for me. It might sound something small to some people, but that was huge for me. Um, yeah, doing the cookbook was a big thing, you know. And um, my brother sent me a photo the other day, and it was sort of on a, sh- you know, it was on a shelf in Waitrose. And he was like, this is really cool. And I was like, yeah, that's amazing. Like, it's so cool. Stick around to hear more inspirational chat, stories and advice from Callum Franklin. Obviously, the flip side of success is um, darker times. And mm. we're asking everyone on, on this series to share some times when they've faced obstacles in their life or felt a bit derailed. And yours is quite a personal story that you you shared on um, social media earlier on this year. Mm. So um, I'm going to let you tell it because um, it's your story. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it was quite a build up to this, you know, all going pretty horribly wrong. But um, I mean, yeah, I'm a, I'm a recovering alcoholic, right? I, I haven't had a drink now for 10 years. So 10 years on the 1st of January this year. And um 
I've been an alcoholic as long as I can remember, as far back as my first drink anyway. So when I was about sort of 14, um, I just drank very differently to all my friends. I'd always drink to get drunk. And basically what happened was over a long period of time, it got gradually worse and worse. Now, one thing with the restaurant industry is it does have somewhat of an ability to camouflage some of those uh, sort of downfalls sometimes. And in the, you know, maybe um, if I worked as a bank teller, I probably couldn't go to work absolutely hungover because you'd know, probably be pretty obvious in front of a guest. But uh, as a chef, you can kind of sweat it out in a kitchen. If you're red-faced and sweaty, you're working hard, right? So I could usually sort of get away with it. And But what happened was uh, sort of moving towards my late 20s, um, that alcohol sort of dependency built and built and built to the point where I became physically addicted to alcohol, where, you know, I, I couldn't... Um, at the towards the end, I couldn't go more than probably an hour without having alcohol in my system or ingesting alcohol. Yeah, because my, you know, I got to a point where I was completely physically addicted. So my body would go into tremors, like really serious tremors, and just you know, really awful feeling, uh, the sort of aching throughout your body. Um, and yeah, I mean, and I was working quite late up until that, pro, you know, that end process where it it all sort of went catastrophically wrong. But, you know, I, I sort of touched on that with Tony earlier. Tony was my boss at the time. He knew something was badly wrong. And instead of just sort of throwing me to the side at the time, I was, I was a, a sous chef in the kitchen in one of his, one of his restaurants. And um, he kind of tried to, you know, walk me through it and, and and be there for me and try and help me but an addiction to any form of sort of drug or alcohol is it, it removes all of your reasoning really um and i you know i would i would say to people that yeah i was you know accepting their help or i was doing something about it but i never was because it was, your mind is sort of taken over at that point um and then it got to a point, yeah, where I'd left the restaurant. I was, uh, I'd moved back in with my mum because I was just completely useless. Uh, you know, I was sort of bedridden, and um, I'd given up. I like, just given up. I just, I couldn't. I absolutely couldn't see a way out of it other than dying. That was it, right? And I remember quite clearly having a, a thought process over a few days where I'd up until that point, my physical addiction had sort of convinced me all the time that I would be able to beat it. Right. That's the problem with addiction is that, you know, you're that want and that need always overrides sort of sensible thoughts. So um, whenever anybody said, yeah, you know, do you think you'd just be able to stop? I'd be like, yeah, no, I will. I will. And I, I believe that in my own head. The reality was, is that's, that's the addiction. And then, yeah, I got to a point where it was this weird stage thing happening where it was over about three days. I said to myself, that's it. I, I, can't, I can't get out of this. I'm done. Uh, I might as well just keep going. And then when I die, I die. I, was, I can't do anything about it. And, um, and then it was a few days after that, um, I don't know what happened. I just woke up and 
something had changed in my head and I had a feeling that if I didn't do something that moment, it, I don't know what it was, but it was like, that's it. I'll, I'll probably die today. And, uh, and I spoke to my older brother and said, I, you know, I don't know what we can do, but I need to try and check into a rehab or something. And he was like, I've been waiting for you to say this for years, you know? And, uh, yeah. And he took me to a rehab. Um, it was just the way I don't know. There was a shame attached to that. I think that was one of the things with, with not wanting to go for so long is that, you know, do I want to be someone for the rest of my life? Who's gone to rehab, right? It's a big fail. That's how I saw it at the time. Uh, looking back now, it's the best thing I ever did in my life, right? Completely changed my life. Uh, and I came out of rehab and I've never drunk since. And, um, yeah, I'm extremely lucky that I was in a position where I could manage to get into one and that I had family around me that could help me do mm. that. Did do you feel as well that um, you were working in an industry, you mentioned before that chefs, alcohol, drugs, it's kind of it's accepted that you might turn up hungover yeah absolutely. whatever yeah but i mean do you know what's what's so refreshing and amazing to see is it, it has changed right i look at the the young team that we have now I mean, my god like when we when i was in my 20s and stuff in kitchens not probably 90 percent of the kitchen was relatively hungover almost every day right? Like it's of some degree. But these young chefs that have come through nowadays, they're actually much more sensible about stuff like that. And since you started telling your story, has, mm. have you had people coming forward to kind of go, I've got a problem or I need help? Or, you know, Has it put you in a position where you feel like you can help people a bit more? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, every, everybody's who's, who's in addiction or, or has, you know, a family member in addiction, it's it's always unique. It's never, this is what you need to do. This is how you fix it. Um, but I, yeah, absolutely. I have people contact me and, and sort of ask me if, uh, you know, I can talk to somebody that they know or if it's somebody reaching out to me directly. And, that, you know, it's a very private thing. And I'll always stop what I'm doing and, and sort of give my time for that because I know how important it is and, and how much it changed my life. And also, you know, what I said about Tony, uh, how important that was to me, having someone being human to me at the time. Um, but, yeah, it's, it is extremely difficult. And I, I have difficult conversations with people where I say, you know, that person's not ready to stop drinking yet. And that's one of the toughest things, you know, Um for someone to understand that. And and my I was talk I talk a lot to my mum about this nowadays, about kind of what happened with me back in those years. So I'd go for dog walks and have long chats about it. And uh it's very emotional. And um, you know, I put my family through an awful lot, an awful lot of the time. And and she said that was one of the hardest things was knowing that they couldn't do anything, right? They had to just wait for it all to sort of come to a head for something to change. And they didn't know how it was going to come to a head or what the result of that would be, but they knew they couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. I think the vi visibility is important as well, you know, for 
for like maybe younger people who, who are struggling in the industry or that that there are conversations now being had about mental health and addiction mm. within within our industry and and it's so important that the that chefs like you who are seen as you know success in their field are like stepping up and saying look i've had things happen in the past that have knocked me off course and mm. it's it's part of it you know and we can come back and the main thing is you can come back from it and you can have an incredible life so i asked you as well to um to give me a recipe that mm. you make when you want to like comfort yourself or comfort others what have you chosen yeah so uh a recipe from the book actually which is one of the most popular pies at the restaurant and that's the dauphinoise potato cheese and onion pie so it's basically like a posh cheese potato and onion pie yes but i love like it a, yeah. it's it's incredible look i've i've given myself the challenge of i'm going to make it this weekend i've decided mm. um so you kind of make make the dauphinoise in a in a round dish and bake it in the oven don't you and then or, yeah. or just let it set and then um, let it set and, yeah yeah and then and, turn it out cover it in pastry make a pastry base and mm. then bake it and your, yours is decorated beautifully and it's um i was talking to um asma khan for another episode of the podcast and yeah. she chose paratha with potato and you've chosen pastry with potato double carbs seem to be mm. like the way to go when you want to <laughs> yeah right. when you want to get ultimate comfort I mean, with that pie, it was um, that was actually the first vegetarian pie we put on in the restaurant when we launched the pie menu. And um, I, yeah, up, up until that point, we'd had four meat pies, and we were kind of under a bit of pressure to sort of put a, veg, a vegetarian pie on. And I'd said to the team, "We're not putting a pie on, a vegetarian pie on, until it's as good as the other four. Right? I don't just want to do a token pie." It's got to be as good as the other ones. And it's genuinely my favorite now. Now It's the one that takes us so much longer to produce than all the others. (laughs) But it's like so unctuous and and sort of rich. And yeah, it's not like a light (laughs) vegetarian meal. It's not. It's got like, uh, yeah, it's got 500 mils of cream in it, I think. Mm. And quite a lot of cheese, but it looks, spec- and it, but it feeds eight to 10 people. I mean, come on, or four yeah. normal people. <laughs> and do you know what, as well, that that pie, it's probably the most cooked recipe I've seen out of the book since we yeah. launched the book. So at Christmas, every day, you know, I'd get sort of 15 messages on social media, people <laughs> making that pie. And I was like, yeah, that's super cool. You know yeah. it's a winner. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, I'm going to finish off with a a question for you, which Mm -hmm. is um, if you're going to give any advice to your younger self, if you could go back in time at any time, what would you, what would you tell Callum? Um, Yeah, I think the most important advice I could give myself is to not worry about what other people are doing, right? Don't worry about other people's success. Don't worry about what other people are achieving. If you focus on yourself and, and making sure that what you're doing is good, those other people will have that same thought, I guarantee you, right? Because I did that for a long, long time. I was really self-conscious, really nervous, really self-doubting because I saw people my age blowing up, 
right? Becoming super successful, winning Michelin stars, being on TV, all of these things. And I was like, "Mm, do I need to do what that person's doing? Or, you know, do I need to maybe start cooking that style of food? Do I need to get tattoos? Do I need, you know, all of these things. And, uh, and it wasn't till I sort of blanked that out and just focused on what I wanted to do and doing it really well, that actually I started becoming successful myself. And, uh, I wish I'd been able to sort of slap myself five years before and just said, don't worry about it. You know, be happy for those people, but, really you know don't don't worry about their careers just focus on your own follow your follow your own path that's Mm. brilliant advice and really nice to end on but thank you so much for coming to chat to us today Callum it was lovely to see you again and I'm hoping to get in for a pie soon yeah we'd (laughs) love to cook for you again so thank you thank you for having me you've been listening to disasters and triumphs an olive magazine podcast series To find out more about the series, including the recipes we talk about in each episode, visit olivemagazine.com, where you'll also find our huge back catalogue of over 200 podcast episodes. Don't forget to subscribe at Acast, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to never miss an episode.